We are going to get started. So I want to get right into it this morning because we actually have a lot to cover. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are going to do verses 1 to 16 this morning. And as you're turning there, so far in this book there has been much that has been what we would call controversial, right? And this morning, we're going to be covering one of the most controversial topics or passages in Scripture. And it seems like that every time these controversial ones come up, I'm teaching it. You know, and I almost wish in my flesh that, you know, Lenny or John can be teaching it. But it, it, this, it, it falls on me, and praise God, it stretches you, and it's God's Word. So no matter what, we are going to honor God's Word. <clears throat> but... As much as it may be controversial in the world sense, right, within the church, nothing in God's Word should be controversial within the body of Christ because God's ways are perfect, His ways are higher than our ways, and it's our job to line up with Scripture and get in tune with it and understand it. But because of sin, one of the things that we have been seeing in Scripture and throughout history is the battle of the sexes, right? And we see it certainly right now, and it's... Different, in different ages and different stages in time. Maybe we see it more than others. But since the fall, this conflict is present, right? And this, present, <clears throat> this is present in our day, and there have been many feminist movements and periods of extreme male chauvinism throughout history, and all this because man has sinned and we are a fallen creature. Now, we have said many times that Genesis... The book of Genesis is foundational to the Christian church, and especially the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. And from the beginning, we see very clearly the principle of male headship. Okay, The principle of male headship. That's, not, that's, a, that's a dirty phrase nowadays in this generation that we live in, but it shouldn't be a dirty phrase or a bad phrase. We see this principle of male headship. And this principle is not something that is only in marriage, because we equate it with marriage, and we seem to accept that by the church, but really in all things is what God's intention is to be. So this principle is not the result of the fall. Some people will say that this is just the result of a fall, because of the fall things are now out of order, but that's not true at all. It's out of order in the function of how that principle operates, but since creation, this is a creation ordinance before the fall, we see this principle very clearly. So I want to read some in Genesis for our understanding today. And rather than just read the text like we normally do, I'm just going to read it as we go along for the sake of time because I have a lot to cover. All right. So I want you to look at Genesis 2, all those verses. I know it's small. I had a lot to get on those papers and I wanted to not have 9 billion sheets for you guys. So I'm sorry if it's too small. But all the verses that I'm covering will be in those verses. So Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25, reads like this. But actually, before I even go, let me pray. Let me stop and pray. Father, again, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the people that are here, my brothers and sisters. I, Lord, I pray, Father, again, that you would make yourself clear and known to us even more, that we'd have a better understanding of you through your word, Father. Give me the strength to teach your truth, Lord God, and teach it accurately, Father, and help us, Father, to embrace, Lord God, everything that comes from you, because we know that it is good and it is perfect. So help us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Genesis 2, beginning at verse 18, says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. 
I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at, the, at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So if we look at these verses, we see clearly a few, th a few things. First, we see that man was created first with great authority, right? And then secondly, we see that the woman was created second with lesser authority. She was the helper to the man. And then thirdly, we see equality. They were to become as one in everything. and They were to be a single unit and operate as a single unit. And a single unit, as a single unit rather, there was to be unity, there was to be harmony, and in one sense, completeness. That is, there was a mutual need for each other. Amen? Then, after the course of time, we know that man sinned, and this sin brought a curse and disorder and dysfunction. Now I want to read something in Genesis 3.16 concerning the woman. It's really the latter part that I want to focus on. He says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. See, here, here's already the proper function of how it should be, but it's going to be screwed up because of the fall. And we learn here something that is very important, and we need to constantly... Go back to this for our understanding in the present. Mankind, being in the image of God, has accomplished many great and amazing things, but mankind's greatest thing that they have accomplished, accomplished is probably not the best word, we're looking at something positive with that word, but understand where I'm going, is, is not something good but the contrary, right? Their greatest accomplishment is bringing sin into the world. That's what man did by himself, right? And because of him... The world has gone from order to disorder, and every day the fall, since the fall rather, this order seems to be increasing, right? We live in a sick and twisted world. And it is only by God's gracious and sovereign hand that it still functions as it, as it functions, right? So in this verse, we see very clearly the conflict that will arise between the woman and the man concerning the natural order of things. So we see that from the beginning, by God's perfect design, man is to be in the position of headship and woman in the position of subordination. And that is not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that a woman is inferior to the, uh, to, to the man by any means. It just means this is how God designed it. For both are created in the image of God. We go back to Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea. Let them 
rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we learn here that man alone, meaning the male, does not possess the image of God alone, but so does the woman. Right? And it is from both sexes that the image of God is actually complete. Man does not complete it on his own. It's man, male, and female. Man can't represent that perfectly, and neither could woman. Adam couldn't represent that perfectly, and neither could Eve. Both are necessary by God's perfect design. You hear that phrase, by God's perfect design, a lot during this message. So mankind, we know, is to represent the goodness of God on this earth, and it can only happen when they function in the way that they were created to function. So this principle of male headship is completely of God and from God and for God. And we are seeing this principle in our text this morning. And that's why I wanted to go through this. So being that we're talking about a principle, it's always good if you're like me who has a terrible vocabulary. Even though I know what the word principle means, sometimes I like to see the definition. So principle defined as a fundamental truth or proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior or for a chain of reasoning. So with that being said, a fundamental truth that must be remembered is that our God is indeed a God of order. And in that order, we see headship and we see subordination. And anything that distorts this principle is against our wonderful God, who is a God of perfect order. And as his image bearers, and more importantly, as his representatives here on the earth, as the church, right? We are to accept this, embrace this, and our lives should be demonstrative of this, and not something that is contrary to this, right? So what I want us to see here this morning is five things concerning this principle of male headship and female subordination. Number one, the principle given, verses two and three of our text this morning. Secondly, the principle wrongly applied in verses four to six. Thirdly, the reason for the principle and its proper application, that's going to be in verses seven to ten. The interdependency that comes with the principle, verses 11 and 12. And then the principle embraced and understood the closing there, verses 13 to 16. So let's look at number one, the principle given. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. That really goes with what Lenny did last week in the closing of chapter 10. Okay, he says, Now I praise you. Because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. So verse 2 is very difficult. I think a very difficult verse to interpret. Because I do not want to take anything 
for granted, it's going to deserve our attention just a little bit. First, when you're reading it, I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered that to him. I'm like, what book is he in? What church is he writing to? We've just been looking at this church and he's been rebuking them and he's been calling them out on so many things that they had to be, that had to be corrected. Right? So what does this actually mean? Um, well, it first it's difficult to understand since this letter, like I said, is extremely corrective in its nature. We have seen that this church was very dysfunctional, very immature. And when we look at the original language, we see, we will see that our English translations, the way that we have it in our English translations, generally interpret this properly as well. So concerning the, the original language, Spiros Odiades, he's been a great help, he's a Greek scholar, okay? He gives the most detail of the Greek, so oftentimes I will refer to him, but I don't agree with him all the time. Sometimes, like a man, he doesn't get it right. But for the most part, when I check what he says in whatever Greek that I know and the programs that I have, he seems to be correct. But before I get into what I want to say there, I want to first draw our attention to the word traditions. And I don't think this is an issue here for our church, but because many false churches will put tradition on the same level or even a greater level than scripture, namely Romanism or the Orthodox Church. They put tradition as even higher at times than scripture. And of course, they will use this verse as a proof text. And we are called to give a defense to what we believe, right? So we want to understand what this means. So the word for tradition simply means a handing down, right? A handing down. And because the New Testament wasn't complete yet, the traditions were the teachings of Christ and the apostles that were handed down by word of mouth before they were actually inscripturated in the Bible that you and I have. So in this sense, traditions is the same as scripture, which is to be followed and is completely authoritative. So that's what Paul is talking about. Verse 2 says that, <clears throat> that in concern of these traditions, that they held them fast, right? And Zodiade says this, it says the verb for hold fast there, it's, Kacheti, katacheti, right? And, and it means to hold down faithfully. And he thinks that it should be taken as an imperative and not as a present indicative. If you look at the Greek, it comes up as present indicative. But why I'm saying this is what struck my attention because it actually, I feel like, makes more sense in the imperative if it is correct, if it's correct. He says, morphologically, it could be either an indicative or imperative. In other words, there's a lot of nuances and things that are kind of difficult sometimes to understand in the Greek, right? And he says that if it were taken as an imperative, it would read as follows. And as I delivered to you to traditions, hold them faithfully. Now again, I actually like that. It makes sense if you look at an interlinear. If any of you guys look at an interlinear Bible that has the Greek next to it, that can be helpful and not so helpful because oftentimes they go in order. And when you're translating a language, you can't always go in order to get the translation. So sometimes it can be very helpful and sometimes it's not. The interlinear favors his interpretation. So where I stand on this as for now is that even though they were dysfunctional and oftentimes divided as we saw earlier and oftentimes immature they still were generally sound Christians. 
Paul over and over confirms them in spite of their problems, right? It is also noteworthy to point out that he is responding again to a letter that they wrote to him for advice. And this shows that they at least remembered his influence, they remembered his authority, though some may not have respected it. Generally, most of them respected it. So in a mix of all this correction, and especially when he's going to rebuke them further in verse 17, he is also commending them for that which is commendable. They came to him to hear what he said as an apostle. So I think that's where I stand right now, though if Zodiades has it right, I like that as well. So you guys can kind of decide there. But as I'm studying this, I have to at least do justice to the text. Right? Verse 3 says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So verse 3 is where we see the principle given. We see that Christ is the head of every man. We know that in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But as true as that is, we need to look at this in the context of the church, both locally, written to this church, but universally, as this is a letter written to all of us, right? And as he begins to speak about order, he was going to explain it in its fullest sense by saying that Christ is the head of a man in the order of things. And if you, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, especially concerning the church, we read this in Ephesians 1, verses 22 to 23. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And he, gave, and he gave him as head, that's talking about Jesus, over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Ephesians 4, 15, he says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Colossians 1.18 says, He is also head of the body, the church, that you and I, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And then secondly, he states that man is the head of a woman. And in these verses, the word for man and woman can be used for husbands and wives or men and women. And I believe it is a reference to men and women in general because the concept of male headship goes beyond the family and we have both biblical history, we have secular history to confirm this. Right? We see this clearly first in the family order in marriage. And I think verse 3 is certainly... Is certainly Shows that. But Ephesians 5, verses 22 and 24, we read, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And that's an important phrase. No one likes the first part, be subject to your husband, but as to the Lord qualifies that statement. That's why you're doing it. Because everything that you're doing is directed towards the true head, who is Christ. Right? So wives... Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. And then we see this also in the church in general. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Verses 11-12, Paul says this to Timothy, A woman 
must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Again, we can, the world and some churches can argue with this and try to fall behind culture. And we're going to talk about culture because that's part of understanding this as well. Okay? But this is according to God's order of things, the way God has intended it to be. And everything that God does is perfect, good, and just, and right. And we need to follow that. If you look at Acts chapter 6, I won't read the whole thing, but Acts chapter 6 is kind of like the, uh, where we first get the, the call, uh, what we would call the office of deacon. There was a need within the church, and we go by this as a model. Though it doesn't say deacon there, it's clearly implied, I believe, right? So there was things going on, right? There was issues, and the apostles didn't want to lose their focus on dealing with some of the practical issues in the church. So it says here in verse 3 in Acts chapter 6, it says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So do we think that there was not seven women of good reputation in this church? I'm sure there was a lot more, right? But the bottom line is because this was going to be a position that had leadership, that had authority, and because of that, because of God's order of things, they were to choose seven men of good reputation. Again, you can go to the qualifications for pastors and deacons in First Timothy. We see very clearly that it must be a man. Okay? Because that is what God has intended it to be. Then, if we were to look at biblical history, we see the overwhelmingly clear principle of male headship just by looking at the patriarchs, looking at the prophets, looking at all the leaders, the kings whatsoever, which are generally all men with a very few exceptions. For instance, people always like to speak of Deborah, right? who was one of the judges, which was an exception to the rule. And if you really look at it, it was also a sign of judgment because men were not stepping up according to their God-ordained role. The prophet Isaiah rebuked the, the nation of Israel. He says this in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12. O my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. O my people, those who guide you, lead you astray, and confuse the direction of your paths. Wow. So that is a sign of judgment. Just because it happens, and praise God that a woman stepped up, maybe like Deborah, but it's not. It's out of order. It's not what God has called us to be. And thirdly, he states that God is the head of Christ. Now this is actually extremely important for our understanding, but I'm going to get back to this later in the lesson because it fits there. So let's go now to uh, number two, the principle wrongly applied. It says, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Alright, so in order to understand this, 
we need to understand the culture first. So generally speaking, in every culture throughout history, there are identifiers in matters of dress and other things that distinguish men from women. Okay? In any culture we can see this. This is not something new. This is an age-old concept. And to violate this means to violate God's perfect order of things. Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 says, A woman shall not wear men's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Something that is completely out of order and detestable because it's of God. It's not of God. Right? God's order is perfect. And it should be embraced by God's people. So even though every culture is different and the differences between dress may not be as drastic. I think about in some cultures, especially back then, they generally wore like robes, right? So maybe it might not have been that drastic, but there were still distinctions. There were still uh, identifiers, right? So dress and the way one wear their hair and coverings for the head symbolize something in certain cultures, and in particular, it did in the Corinthian culture, which was that Greco-Roman kind of culture. And because this church consisted of Jews and Gentiles who had prior customs, they needed to be reminded that you're now a new creation in Christ Jesus, and all the old things have passed away. In verse 4, concerning the man where it says something on his head can either be some kind of headpiece or longer hair, which was not typical of men in that Greco-Roman culture. Okay? In verse 5, an uncovered head, in reference to the woman, is reference to not having some kind of headpiece or longer hair, which was not typical of men, which I'm sorry, which was typical of women in that culture as well. Not much has really changed. Okay? So one commentator points out that the small Jewish portion in the church may have been trying to push their customs on the majority Gentile church. We saw this in the church at Rome. And in their custom, men wore head coverings, right? So more importantly, and I think it fits this, was that many women were prostitutes in that culture, right? And they usually wore their hair short as a sign of a rebellious spirit, not caring. I mean, they were a prostitute and they were unashamed to be a prostitute. Or maybe they had their hair shaved as a mark of shame given to them. So shorter hair and their hair shaved is two completely different things. That was kind of like the penalty or maybe a judgment from a, for that it was given oftentimes to a prostitute. So the bottom line of what Paul is trying to communicate is that just as God is a God of perfect order, His church, who are redeemed by the blood of His Son, and who have been given the precious gift of the Holy Spirit, who have new life, should reflect this. Amen? Their church should reflect something that is different. Roger Ellsworth, I think he makes a good point. He says, Christian women were appearing in the worship services as if they were immoral women. And this, of course, caused the men to be distracted. And distraction of any kind is a mortal enemy of true worship. 
And this was really building off what we've been learning so far about doing things for the sake of our brother and sister to bring edification to them. And I just think that what we look like on the outside should be fitting or a reflection to what is going on on the inside. The reality is this. You know, we always want to talk about not judging and don't judge and be judgmental. And we get that and we shouldn't in its proper context. But the reality is the way someone looks, how they dress, oftentimes does reflect their mindset, their worldview, who they are. Maybe not all the time. There's exceptions you have to get. But the bottom line is it does. If I sit there and I have one of those pagans, you know, that the pagan motorcycle thing or hell's angels. Well, I can kind of know where they are if you go look at the thing that they're involved in. If someone wears uh, a lot of those things that have to do with a church of Satan or those people who dress like they're vampires. Guess what? Most likely... I know what their worldview is and the way they think. It's a reflection of what's going on from the outside. We know what a hooker dresses like. Right? If we see something like that, we might be shocked at first, but usually it's a good assessment of what maybe is going on in her lifestyle. Right? So again, sometimes it's wisdom. So what we look like on the outside should be a reflection of what is going on on the inside. I think that takes, that, that's showing wisdom. And I personally believe that the application of this is different in every culture, and yet it's kind of the same. It's different because every culture is different. So how that looks may be different. But the application is the same as, okay, if this is what it is, well, then you must be different or be new. So we ought to dress, and I was listening to uh, Paul Washer, and you know sometimes I, I think he's great, and then sometimes... I get a little frustration when, frustrated when I listen to him. But more and more I've been enjoying him, listening to some stuff that he does. And he's a, he's a missionary, so he's been around many different cultures, okay? And he saw a lot of things. And, and one of the things he was saying in this video is that Christians have a tendency, is you act like weirdos. You know, you're trying to, like, minister to people. Not everyone, he's generalized. He says a lot of times they're trying to do something, but you're acting, essentially, you're just acting weird, like, that's not like a good testimony. You're not shining the light of Christ by being like that. And when it came down to, to culture, so to dress, he had said this, and, I, and I, I think I agree with him. He says, we ought to dress like our culture unless our culture violates God's laws or God's standards. In other words, if I'm, I can tell you this. If somehow God called me to go live in another country where the dress is completely different than the way I dress, I'm probably going to try to fit in as a sign of respect. I want to know what that culture is. And I think this just, it just takes some kind of wisdom. So I agree with them. But let's move on. Number three, the reason for the principle and its proper application. Verse seven says, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So again, that can really ruffle some feathers, let's be honest. So let's look at what this means. So we know that in God's perfect order of things, man was created first, 
And even though the woman was created on the same day, a lot happened on that first day before the woman was created. Right? So let's just look at Genesis 2 again, 15 and 21. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. So on the first day, we see several things here. Well, first we see the covenant of works given to Adam. In other words, he was put into the garden, which I believe was like the first temple, and he was to keep it. He was to keep the garden. And then God gave him a command that was to be followed completely, and that command had stipulations. Obeying it would lead to blessings, and disobeying it would lead to a curse. And this was specifically given to the man, right? So we also see the principle of headship. We call this federal headship. Adam, as the first man, represents every single human being, male and female. And then we also see the principle of subordination. The helper is always subject to the authority who is the head. And then finally, we see the principle of interdependency. That is how both the head and the helper need each other. They need each other. Right? So because things like dress and head coverings and many other things often symbolize greater realities, we ought to be diligent in keeping them as his representatives. So the first application of this is seen in the man. So here in this verse, verse 7, here, the scripture gives us the because concerning why man ought not to have his head uncovered. Have his head covered. That is, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now before, because some people have a problem with that, because it doesn't mean that God is not glorified in both of them because He is. Glory has a specific meaning in this context. So, on the surface, it may seem as if man is greater than woman in his essence, and it does not mean that at all. Okay? So I think this all goes back to the purpose for the crown of God's creation. First, we already saw that both men and women are created in the image of God. Not one but both of them. And the image would be incomplete with only one of them. But the controversial word here is the word glory. And if we be honest, glory has a very high and reverent meaning. Right? We know that God is to get all the glory. 
We know that He Himself is glorious. There is no being that is higher in status, higher in rank than the God of all creation. And for us to understand this, we need to see this word glory as a place of honor and status in function over another. Okay? Adam had a special status because he was created first. As a matter of fact, when he's talking to the church, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 again, he says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Why? Verse, 12, or thirst, verse 13. For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. He's going back to qualify that statement to what God has said from the beginning in His perfect order. So here, this verse is speaking of order, but in particular in the church. His church should be ordered just like it was intended to be in creation. He is also given the same gender. Man is given the same gender as God. God refers to himself in the masculine. That's what we see in scripture. He was given the honor also of headship. That is, every human being came from him, including the first woman who also was his wife. And then woman, on the other hand, is the glory of man. Woman was created second according to God's perfect order of things and according to God's perfect design. And unlike man, woman was created directly from or out of man. Right? She was created out of his substance, we can say. Therefore, we can conclude that Woman was God making something quite amazing out of the man. Amen? So verse 8 says that man does not originate from woman, but woman originate from man. So that means man was directly created out of the dust, we know, whereas woman was created out of the man. And verse 8 tells us that she was created specifically for the man, right? She was created specifically for the man. Headship only makes sense if there is subordination. It only makes sense if there is subordination. So all mankind, male and female, are the image of God, and they are equal in their essence, male and female, and glory in this particular context refers to inequality in function and not in essence. I think MacArthur gives good words saying... Woman was made to manifest man's authority and will as man was made to manifest God's authority and will. The woman is vice-regent, who rules in the stead of man or who carries out man's will, just as man is God's vice-regent, who rules in his stead or carries out his will. The woman shines not so much with the direct light of God as with the derived light from man. Man is both the image and glory of God, while woman is only the image of God, Genesis 1.27, and not the image of man, and the glory of man, not the glory of God. The point, is that man shows how, uh, the point is that man shows how magnificent a creature God can create from himself, while woman shows how magnificent a creature God can make from a man. And I think he has it right when he says that. So verse 10 says, Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. 
So most translations add the word symbol or sign to this verse. And though it certainly is true, but I believe the natural reading of it brings home the lesson being taught much better, and I think it's more accurate. So properly taking into Greek, this verse reads, woman ought to take or exercise authority over her head. Right? That's how it actually reads in the Greek. So in other words, God tells us what we are to do, right? He has shown us many things what to do, right? But He doesn't force us to do it, right? Therefore, women are to accept this, what God has said concerning order, and then take authority over their own lives to be obedient to what God has said that they are to do. Does that make sense? Right? So yes, by God's design, women are to be subordinate to men and wives are to be subordinate to their husbands, but they are to do this willingly for God's glory, accepting His perfect design. In other words, take authority over your lives to be obedient to the Master. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, I said I was going to get back to this. I said that this is important. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And that's that last part where it says, God is the head of Christ. God is the word theos, with the definite article ho in the Greek, which means the Father. Kind of like in John, beginning of the, the Gospel of John. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Father, and the Word was God. So even in the divine Godhead, in which all three persons of the Trinity are equal in their essence, right? They are all co-equal in their deity, yet they are not equal in their function. The Father is the head of Christ, and of course, by implication, the Holy Spirit as well. Here is the perfect order of the Trinity, and so the creation should reflect God's perfect order. Now, good angels, to that last part, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but good angels are examples of perfect obedience to their created function. We know that a third of them fell. And they watch us as spectators, and they care about the creation being obedient. They long to even understand what salvation is. They cannot relate to redemption, because there was no redemption for those that fell. Right? So God, the angels are watching, and they obey God perfectly. Let's put a good show for them. Let's obey them as we are called to obey. Then four, the interdependency that comes with the principle. However, verse 11, In the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So by God's design, men and women need each other. This is first seen in the marriage relationship, right? For companionship, it's not good that man should be alone. And then, of course, biologically. There is no continuation of the human race unless you have both men and women. But more importantly, Paul wants both men and women to have a clear head concerning their God-given roles. And the church is to know this more than anyone, right? So we are equal in our value, we are equal in dignity, men and women, and in worth, but we are not in our function. And that is how God has intended it. Richard Platt gives us some very helpful words. He says, Paul brought two considerations to the foreground. First, neither husbands nor wives are independent from each other. 
Paul restated that woman or a wife is not independent of her husband, of a man or a husband, a principle evident from the first uh, verses 3 to 10. Her authority was always meant to complement man's, so she must not think herself autonomous. Next, Paul added the corollary that a man or a husband is not independent of a woman or a wife. Husbands must not think that their headship implies independence from or superiority over their wives. He says their dependence on their wives qualifies their roles as heads. And I, and I like that. Because all I can say is amen to this because I desperately need my wife and she knows it. And she can very much say, oh yes you do. Right? <laughs> I desperately need my wife. In church there are so many things that need to be done in this church, in this local body that would not get done if us men did not have you godly women coming alongside us to work as a unit, right? And then finally, I'm almost done getting through it, the principle embraced and understood. He goes on to say in verse 13, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So after everything that has been said, Paul gives somewhat of a rhetorical question here, right? And I believe he is calling them to think and reason amongst themselves as individuals and as a congregation to everything that he's been saying up to this point. He is calling them to consider all the things that he's been talking about, but especially the concept of doing things for the purpose of building up one another in the most holy faith. Go back to that principle. That's why we do the things that we do. And he goes on to say in verse 14, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? And again, nature here, because this can be a difficult verse to understand too, but nature here means the natural order of things or the norm as according to the way God created it. And it's the same word used in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural against nature. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So even in the Greco-Roman culture, as in many cultures today, long hair or hair ornately dressed, as the word can actually mean as well, is typical for women and their softer and more tender nature. So in reference again, Zodiades, in reference to uh, the verb komeo, which is where we get uh, long hair, or the, the word for long hair, uh, Liddell and Scott in their Greek-English lexicon states the following. He says, for men to wear long hair was considered as a sign of foppery, which is foolishness or folly, and dissolute habits. So the word komeo carries with it the connotation of a careless attitude, the evidence of which in men is long hair in that particular context. Verse 15, But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for her her covering. So on the contrary, when a woman has long hair or acts according to nature, what is proper, God's natural order of things, It is, in fact, a glory to her. It is an honor to her. Glory, which is the word doxa, which means praise, honor, and splendor. And why is this? Because anything 
that is natural and according to God can only be this, right? It's of God. If it was what God thinks is good and honorable, then it is good and honorable in its fullest sense. And then he closes by saying, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So Paul closes by saying, listen, if anyone wants to argue about this, understand that you have no grounds for it. If you look at all the churches that have been established who are under God's authority, who have His Holy Spirit, He's he's saying you will see the same exact things that I'm saying to you guys right now. That it's correct. So to close this morning, I want to call our attention to something that I believe is going to be helpful for our application and is actually very simple to understand. This lesson is about order and the principle of male headship and by implication, female subordination. It's about upholding the natural order of things by God's perfect design. Sin and the effects of sin cause much that is contrary to this natural order of things. Man was created holy, righteous, and good. Sin made man unholy, unrighteous, and evil. And Jesus came to deliver us from all this and make us new. Amen? And we can relate to that here as a church. So if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I love these, this, this passage. Verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They can't because that place is righteous. No unrighteousness can be there. It says, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, all those big sins we would call them, right? (laughs) Will inherit the kingdom of God. And then, I love verse 11. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Therefore, church, because the Lord saved us from our old selves and our old lives of sin, whatever extent that was, because it's probably different for all of us, we must now present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead and slaves to righteousness unto Him. Right? This is our reasonable service, which we always go back to in Romans 12. This is our reasonable service. So if God saved me out, let's just say, let's just say I was involved in the church of Satan. Let me just give you an extreme example. I'm involved in the church of Satan. I'm dressing like they dress. With all their stupid rituals that are against God. And then God steps in and saves my soul. Why on earth would I come to church looking like that? When He has cleansed me from all that and made me completely new. So let's be new. I think we're right at the end, Chidija. So talk to me afterwards because we have to get into church. All right? I know I was going to be a little late today. So let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for all Your blessings. Help us to understand You more as we get into church. Be with Pastor John as he gives the message, Lord God. And help us, Lord God, to remember as we observe your table this morning what a wonderful blessing that is that we are seated at
the God of all creation's table forever. And that is what we are remembering this morning. So thank you for that. Help us to be attentive. In Jesus' name, amen.